The Echo Chamber, brought to you by The Homes Report and produced by the international broadcast specialist, Marketeers. Sponsored by The Bullet Group, putting you in tomorrow's conversations today. Hi, I'm Diana Marzalek. I am a senior reporter with The Homes Report, and we're here in, uh, we're not in the echo chamber, actually. We're recording uh, from on-site at the UN today. I am with Stefan Dujeric. He is the spokesperson for the UN Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, and uh, appreciate you being here. Great, Diana. Welcome, and uh, welcome to the United Nations. Welcome to the UN Radio Studios. I love this with all the flags of the uh, of all the nations and uh, all the sort of formality. It's it's a great change. So I appreciate you having me here. Our pleasure. I have to ask you: the UN um, is one of those entities that everybody's heard of. Everybody vaguely knows what it's about, but do people really know what the UN does? Yes and no. We hope they do, but in reality, they don't. And I think we have to spend a lot of time explaining what the UN is and what the UN is not. It's not a world government. It is not an independent body that is there to impose laws and regulations onto the rest of the world. It is an organization made up of 193 member states. It reflects the world that we live in, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Um, I think our challenge as communicators is that we have arguably what is one of the world's most recognizable logos, right? People see the UN logo. They know what, it, what the organization is called. However, unlike uh, I think a lot of um, private companies, uh, whether it's Starbucks, McDonald's, Coca-Cola, we have zero brand management. We have no logo management. And that's because the way the, the United Nations is organized. So you have a lot of different people, entities, bodies who can legitimately speak with the UN logo next to them on behalf of part of the United Nations. And so there are a lot of different messages and mixed messages coming out of the organization. So it's a challenge for those of us who are professional communicators to navigate that world. Does that um, undermine a little bit about what the UN is actually doing, or at least not undermine the, the actual actions, but at least the perception of what the UN is doing? I don't know if it undermines. It just creates, it creates a, a great challenge to us because, in a sense, the UN is both a stage and an actor, right? The General Assembly, where you have 193 uh, member states, the Security Council, where you have 15, where the, the key decisions of peace and security are made, that's the stage, right? And that's what we, the Secretariat, provide for the member states. So uh, ambassadors, presidents, prime ministers speak with the UN logo next to them on that stage. But the UN is also an actor in the sense of the people that work for the Secretary General, the, the humanitarian workers, the, the UNICEF staff members who are there you know, vaccinating people in a, in a war zone, the human rights monitors, the peacekeepers. Those are the actors. So we're a lot, a lot of things. And we have to spend a lot of time explaining who we are and what we do. Well, so then you have quite a, your work cut out for you. I mean, how do you manage that challenge in your day-to-day -day job? Heavily medicated. I like that. <laughs> I'm all for it. No, no uh, all, all joking aside, I think the, in my, my job is fairly narrow in a sense. I'm the spokesman for the Secretary General of the United Nations, so I don't speak on behalf of other parts of the, sec of, 
of the organization. I don't speak on behalf of the General Assembly, the Security Council. I speak on behalf of one person, and that's the Secretary General, who is, uh, if you look at the UN Charter, his job is, is, is vaguely described as the Chief Administrative Officer of the organization. Of course, in the last 70 years plus, it has evolved into being a, a global voice. Uh, someone who's expected to use his bully pulpit or her bully pulpit, though we've only had men as secretary general up, up to now. And and the joke is that the, when the member states who elect the secretary general always hope it's someone who's going to be more of a secretary than a general, uh, but it rarely ends up that way. And so I, the, the secretary general, going back to, to the discussion of the logo, the secretary general kind of personifies this organization Right, because it's one individual, and it's only it's normal that we we like to personify organizations. Yet his authority over the organization itself is very limited. So when there are different parts of the UN that say things that are critical to one member state or another, or do things that are wrong, he may have no authority over them. But yet he often gets the blame because he's that one individual. So I spend a lot of time speaking off the record to journalists unpacking the organization. Even even journalists that are that are well versed in the UN and even staff members who are well versed in the UN sometimes need a little bit of time to unpack and really understand what part of the organization may be talking at one point or another. And so speaking for the Secretary General or speaking for the Secretary General's office, that is an office of neutrality? Um, it's an office of impartiality. It's it's not neutral because Sometimes we are given mandates to enforce by the Security Council in peacekeeping operations. Uh, sometimes we have to denounce uh, certain actions by certain countries, human rights violations. So it's not neutral, but it is meant to be impartial, right? The Secretary General can of often offer his good offices to resolve conflicts if both parties uh, so choose to, to accept him. And so um, the, the office... There is an expectation, I think, from the public at large that the secretary general will stand for the greater good, right? And so he has to meet those expectations, but he also has to work with 193 member states who are his bosses. I mean, if you were looking at a private company, it would be, you know, the, the CEO having a, a board with 193 members, can be challenging sometimes. And some of those 193 are more powerful than others, uh, but they all also have all one vote in the General Assembly. But is the greater good, can it be defined differently by depending on which of those 193 members? I think, yeah, I think those, those, each member state may have a different definition. Our, um, our ideals, our principles are those that are enshrined in the United Nations Charter. Uh, and in the um, in, in the international uh, human rights uh, covenant, and those those are the things that underpin all our actions. And every every one of those 193 member states to join the UN have had to accept the principles in the Charter and the uh, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Okay, so the way I see it, you have a very hard job. It's, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a. First of all, I think it's the best job in the building. Uh, mm -hmm. I have a lot of fun doing it, um, but I think, you know, whether my job or really more explicitly a secretary general's job is that much more challenging because the political space in which he can speak openly is rather limited. 
the Secretary General has to navigate the interests of the 193 member states. And when things are going well in the world, the job of the Secretary General is easier because the United Nations, the nations that make up the UN are often united. It is much more difficult when we see discord amongst the member states, especially the most powerful ones, which we're seeing really now and in the last few years on a number of key issues, whether it's, uh, whether it's Syria or Yemen or some of the big crises that we found. And the Secretary General has to, has to navigate that space. And as do you, it's not like being a, uh, a partisan politician. Right, and, I, and, and sometimes I watch uh, briefings by uh, political spokespeople and I get a little jealous. I was going to ask, uh, because they, they could they, just go for they it. They have a little more leeway, you know, they're, they're not as anchored into the facts as uh, sometimes we have to be. Um, and they, they really push for a position. We're often in the middle. You know, there, there are a number of, of issues in which we are the mediators, or we are the negotiators, we are the good offices. And so when you're trying to bring two parties together that are sometimes a little reluctant to sit at the same table, it's often easy to blame the mediator. And so we have to be very careful. I have to be very careful in what I say, because we're often trying... I mean, I'll give you an example. Today on uh, on, on Yemen, uh, we're in the middle of trying to implement an agreement that was agreed to between the government of Yemen and the Houthi rebels. We're having challenges, and the deadlines are slipping, and the journalists want to know exactly who is to blame, right? I'm not going to say publicly who is to blame, because if I say who is to blame now, that party may decide to walk away altogether, and the accord will have no, no chance of ever being implemented. And in the end, it's the people of Yemen that will suffer. So there's a lot of, of uh, reserve into what I can say publicly. But I do do a lot of work with journalists off the record. Off the record. Um, so you have to really build that trust. But as you mentioned to me, you have a, a, a bigger press corps full-time here than I expected. You said a couple hundred people? Yeah, we have about 200 journalists that are accredited uh, full-time through the United Nations. They have their offices in the UN. They reflect uh, the UN as a whole. From an American standpoint, it's interesting because it is the only place in the United States that you will have a large Iranian press core. Mm -hmm. You have Cuban journalists, because by treaty, any country that hosts a UN headquarters, whether it's the United States, uh, Austria, Switzerland, or, or Kenya, has to give visas to journalists that are accredited to the UN. And so we have every shade of Arab journalists, we have Israeli journalists, Palestinian journalists, you know, uh, we're we do a lot, of a lot of questions on Venezuela. We have journalists that are "Quote unquote pro Maduro or pro, pro you know quote, pro Guaido." So we we're often you know sometimes I feel a bit like a ping pong ball because all these journalists come at it with a political bias like we all have a certain bias and so we're trying again trying to navigate uh, the center road but so with these journalists I do I have to build a relationship of trust. It's one of it's a relationship of uh, what I would. To, to use a disarmament term of mutually assured destruction okay. because I have to trust them that when I speak to them off the record on background, it will stay off the record on background. And they have to trust me when they come to me with an exclusive story they're working on. I won't blab about it so their, their competitors who may have an office two doors down from them hears about it. So we kind of hold each other uh, with an unspoken, you know, 
a word of a bond on, on trust. And what, if that trust is broken, it's very hard to repair. Well, that I believe. And when you're dealing with countries, and I mentioned that you deal with journalists that represent countries that may not have a free press. I mean, does that come up? Or our version, American version well, of a I free mean, press? Well, I mean, you know, one like. of the things I've, I've learned in dealing with the media for the past 18 years here is that it, being a journalist means different things in different countries. And for people who grew up in the West, being a journalist means... Uh, pushing authority, questioning authority, not really believing authority. There are other parts of this world where it doesn't mean that. It means you have to transcribe what the authority says, and you don't really ask questions. So we have, we have a mix of journalists uh, in this in, who have their offices in the UN. So it's, from an anthropological point of view, it's interesting to, to study the different ways uh, one can be a journalist. And as a former journalist yourself, so that must have been quite the transition coming from a, a you worked for ABC News, as mm -hmm. you said, being a journalist. Your, your task here seems very imbued with diplomacy also. Yes. I mean, you have to be a journalist and you have to be a diplomat to do this job. In a sense, we do a daily press briefing every day. So every day, I'll, I'll, myself or my deputy, somebody else in my office will speak on camera to the press. Mm -hmm. And in preparation for that briefing, we spent four or five hours being journalists internally, annoying our colleagues, asking questions, pressing them for information. Once we gather that information, we then package it in a way that we can present it that's understandable to the journalist, but sticks to a diplomatic linguistic code, because there are certain words we can use, certain words we can't use. So it's, it's critical, I think, to do this job effectively to have had a background in journalism. And most of the people on my staff have worked as, as journalists in one way or another. And how has your relationship with the journalist, or not the personal relationship, but what have you noticed in the changes in the way that you, the, the daily workings of the press? We're living in a time of anti-press rhetoric. We're, mm -hmm. you know, there's fear in certain countries. There's actions against journalists. How, what have you noticed in terms of the daily interaction? Well, I mean, obviously, the issue of freedom of the press is one that comes up more often than not. And, and we've, the Secretary General is taking a very strong stance in defense of journalists' help uh, through quite diplomacy-free journalists in a number of countries and, and when he's not able to sp speaking out very loudly to get them, uh, to make sure they're not forgotten. But I think, you know, it's, it's not like the press at the UN is harassed more now than it was 20. I mean, they're 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 free to do whatever they they want. Sometimes you know. Sometimes I joke that I'd like freedom from the press, <laughs> but that. that's a, that depends on the day. Um, but I think what the biggest change that I've seen since I got here uh, is is the the increased pressure on journalists to produce news throughout the day, right? Right. On Twitter, on Facebook, and so the challenge for us is that on one hand you have a news cycle which turns ever quicker, right, at 100, 100 megahertz, yet the cycle of diplomacy stays basically unchanged, yeah. right, at, mm -hmm. at a much, much slower speed. And, and the gap between the two speeds keeps growing. And th there is a reason why the cycle of diplomacy works slowly, because sometimes you can't react off the cuff. You have to be careful, especially, again, if you're the UN, if you're in, in the middle of things. You don't always need to be the first one to react. You have to think about what you're going to say. You have to make sure your facts are right. So we're, the journalists are under pressure. So that pressure then comes on to us because they want reactions out of us. 
And so that's, to me, that's the biggest kind of pressure point, the biggest change that I've seen uh, over the last, you know, I'd say almost two decades that I've been that I've been here. Well, and everything you're saying now is counter to what we hear in the press. So turning around quickly, right. checking facts, making right. sure that you've got it right. right. I mean, these are all tenets that should be part of, of of jobs and jobs like yours and the presses, but it's just not always right. I mean, reality. And, and 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 also, you know, again, we are um, we are the UN, and I think rightfully so, is kept to a higher standard. So you will have sometimes representatives of countries react quickly to an event, just like politicians do, because it's in their interest to push one narrative or another. But the UN has to have its facts right. And that's one of the, you know, it's, it's one of the things I challenge my colleagues on. So when we're reporting on casualties, on, you know, either from war, from humanitarian disasters, or any sort of, of data that we give out on specific issues, I always push them to make sure that these are numbers that we can stand by, right? Mm -hmm. And if we are not 100% sure that we use the term reported, right? There's a reported 100. Because once, if we use numbers that are not sourced to the UN, and then we speak them, it's a blue wash. They become UN numbers, right? right? And they become a point of reference for the media and for various parties. So we have a higher duty and a higher responsibility to ensure that the data and the figures that we use are correct. And what about the language that you use, considering that you're, you're, you're communicating to... I've swore... Like, I, I, sometimes I've used... I've, you have I, used I, bad in, words? I've used bad words on an open <laughs> mic and I've regretted it, but you know... It's, Did you uh, get in trouble? I get it. I get it. No, I, I don't get in trouble. I get chuckles. Uh, yeah. Fair enough. And um, I don't blame you because once in a while, to, those diplomats right, got to blow a gasket. I, tr I try to do it both in French and English so nobody gets angry. <laughs> very yeah, multilingual. Yeah. You're very diplomatic. Yeah, yeah. No, but the, the words that we use are, uh, are very much codified, right? Right. Uh, especially for certain, uh, for certain conflicts or certain issues that we deal with. I'll give you an example, if you allow me. Please. On one of the issues that the UN has been dealing with since, uh, since the 70s is Cyprus. Mm -hmm. you know, and there, the island is physically divided. There is the internationally recognized Republic of Cyprus, which is a member state of the United Nations. Okay. In the northern part of, of the island, there is a, a Turkish part of Cyprus, the, uh, the, the, Tur the, the Republic of Nor Turkish Republic of Northern Cyprus, which is not a member state of the UN. So when we talk about Cyprus, when the UN talks about Cyprus in every, any aspect, except for the negotiations, we refer to the president of the Republic of Cyprus as the president of the Republic of Cyprus and the Republic of Cyprus. In the context of what we call our good offices, we have to refer to the president of the Republic of Cyprus as the Greek community leader and the head of the, the Turkish Republic, the Northern Republic Turkish of Cyprus, we refer as the Turkish community leaders. And we refer to it as the two communities. And does that come from the UN? How that, do you even get to the well, point where Well, that comes from the, from the good offices and the negotiations that are going on. So I'm, I'm giving very specific right. words. And if I don't use the right words, there is a complaint from one of the parties that I didn't use the right vocabulary. There is a, a good news story for diplomacy, and it will it'll explain to you uh, the, the slowness of the diplomatic process. 
after the breakup of the Yugoslavia in the, mm-hmm. in the 90s, different countries emerged. One of them was a country that is referred to outside of the UN, and I, I hope I don't even get, used, get in trouble to use that, as Macedonia. Mm-hmm. The official name of that country that was given temporarily to it in, in the early 90s was the former Yugoslav Republic of Macedonia, okay. FIROM, right? Right. Since 93 or so, the Security Council had given a mandate to the UN to resolve what we call the name issue between FIROM mm-hmm. and Greece, because the issue is that the northern part of Greece is also known as Macedonia, and the Greeks refused to accept Macedonia, that country, to use that name. So there was okay. a whole... Uh, it was a thing. <laughs> right. And, and it just got resolved a few months ago. So it really? took from 1992 wow. to now. And now the country is, is known as the Republic of North Macedonia, mm-hmm. and Greece has accepted it. The end result is that the Republic of North Macedonia will now be on the, e- the track to join the European Union okay. and NATO, which Greece had always blocked. It took 30 years to mm-hmm. get there. The good news is not one drop of blood was shed. Absolutely, right? right. You look at Syria, you look at Yemen, you look at all these conflicts. Right. Right. And we keep talking about the need for diplomatic solutions. Diplomacy takes a long time. Um, so whether it's Cyprus or Macedonia, it's just go back. It's, there are specific words that we can use and words we cannot use. And it's hard for, for us as communicators, it's hard because journalists need more simple language, but we can't always give them that simple language on the record. And the, the, another question about the speed of diplomacy um, and going back to the idea of the UN brand and, and people getting it, what you're doing. What is the challenge in showing your relevance and explaining your relevance to people, whether to government, whether to people, that the UN is is doing good, that you have a purpose? Well, there is the absence of conflict, mm-hmm. right? There is the humanitarian work that we do every day, right. right? In Syria, where we have colleagues on the front lines delivering food, um, you have vaccination campaigns going on in Somalia to vaccinate children against polio and against measles in the middle of a war zone, right? Right. It's the UN and our local partners that do that. Then there's the whole, I would say, uh, more invisible normative side of the UN, the, the, the UN special, what we call the specialized agency, the International Civil Aviation Organization, which basically sets norms so that when you get on a plane in Los Angeles and you fly to Seoul in South Korea, there are norms that the tower uses, that the pilots use, that allow for commerce, right? Right. The Universal Postal Union, which predates the actual United Nations, uh-huh. was there because when post offices were created in the 19th century, formalized, they realized that to, you know, for a letter to go from Paris to Berlin, the French post office and the German post office had to have some agreement on how to do this. So there's a universal post which allows you to send a letter, you know, from Johannesburg, and it'll make sure it gets to, to Copenhagen. There is, you know, the World Trade Organization, right. which allows, allows for, for commerce, international telecommunications union on, on phones. So there are all these 
the World Health Organization. They're all these organizations that helps set norms. They don't impose norms, but they're member states coming together and agreeing on norms that allows us to do business and to travel from point A to point B, for information to travel from point A to point B. So that's a whole part of the UN. And then there is the, 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 the human rights norms that the UN has created. So not only the, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights from 1947, mm-hmm. 48, but all the, tre- you know, the, 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 the treaties on human rights of children, social and, and political rights, economic rights, all this body of human rights is so important to the world at large because it's aspirational goals for countries, but it also, in, in those countries where human rights are more challenged, it gives civil society and, 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 and human rights activists something to hold governments accountable right. to. So it's just so vast um, that it's very difficult to really explain uh, and for everybody to grasp it. But, but the UN is really the, the, the framework that allows us to live together on this planet. So where do you go from here? Does does the UN need a PR campaign? I mean, how much is the buy-in? How much is well, the understanding? The the, the, the ch- you know I mean, and uh, I think as as probably your your listeners who are all professional communicators know, the best way to have your story told is not by you but by others. Yes. Right. Mm-hmm. And so for us, it's important that governments also underscore the importance of the UN. Right. Right. That they give the multilateralism credit for keeping the world at peace in most parts of the world or for helping solving conflict or for ensuring that humanitarian aid and that development goes forward. It, it's not my UN. It's, it's our UN. We all, all of us, have a stake in this global institution. I mean, if you look at the challenges that we face, pandemics, terrorism, climate change, those problems don't stop at a border. No. Right? You can't build a border. You can't, you know, dig a trench. It's not going to stop. And so whether you like the country, your your neighboring country or country, it doesn't really matter whether you like them or not. You're going to have to deal with them. Right. Right? When there's a breakout of, you know, of... uh, of some avian flu in, um, in, in, in pigs in one part of the world, it's going to impact the whole food chain very quickly. Yes. And so that's where the World Health Organization comes in. It allows people to sit together and reach a, a consensus. Right. Now, we're sitting here in your studios, mm-hmm. um, and you have a desk, and I, I see UN Radio, UN TV. Mm-hmm. Tell me about your um, own internal communications. So UN Radio is an external communication. Our, we have a, a great team of uh, journalists who work for the UN. They produce radio content in eight languages every day. So the, uh, the six official languages, French, English, Arabic, Spanish, Russian, and Chinese. Plus, we do radio in Swahili. And Portuguese. Oh, mm-hmm. And so it's interesting for us because on, on one hand, you know, we, we, we post all this content on our own websites, but it's also a great product that is being used by very small local news sources throughout the developing world. I mean, as you know, the, the threshold for creating a media entity is very low. It doesn't take that much money to create a local uh, you know, community radio station or a news site. But all these new uh, news organizations also need content. Yes. So we provide content free of charge to anyone who wants it. 
So uh, a local community radio station in, um, in Kenya can access the UN's Swahili service and put that on their air. And so it gives their listeners a more global viewpoint. And we do that so not only for, for audio, we do it for text. And we often have, I mean, we see it uh, through great, you know, we're flattered because sometimes we'll see news organization basically cut and paste what we call the UN News Center stories who were written not as press releases but as, as wire copy, and they'll take it and use it as their own, which is fine. It's all free of charge. We produce television uh, every day, so two main things. One is a C-SPAN-like um, pool feed of all the meetings that are going on mm-hmm. in the United Nations. So broadcast quality and webcast, almost every meeting is up and available, also in the six languages. And we provide... Uh, short uh, clips about between, you know, minute 30 and three, three minute 30 of uh, video from the UN at headquarters and in the field. So we'll send that out through Reuters television, AP television, and, and others. And there'll be a shot list, a suggested script, and all UN TV material, which is there uh, free of charge for broadcasters to use. Interesting. And so all the content is based on UN going on. It's all, it's all news... Right, it's Based. it's our and it's it's content that we own and that we produce, and we do it in a very transparent manner. I mean, it is uh, branded UN. It says UN Radio, and so broadcasters are free to to be transparent, to say what the source is, and sometimes they sometimes they don't, sometimes they do. Uh, but we're very transparent. We're not trying to uh, package ourselves as something else. It is UN content. Whether it's a, you know whether it's text or audio or video, so I imagine you've had some experiences that are very unique to the job mm-hmm. <laughs> in your travels or meetings. Um, what are some of the more memorable, exotic, or uh, or uh, challenging moments that you've had? Um, you know, I think the, the most terrifying moment I had was I think my third day on the job when a journalist came into my office and it was associate spokesman came in, asked me a question. I talked, and then they started writing down what I was saying. Was <laughs> You're like, on the other side. I'm like, wait a second. <laughs> That's truly, truly terrifying. Um, but, you know, the great privilege that I've had is to accompany, uh, having worked for three secretaries general at different different times, uh, to accompany them in their, um, in their travel. Um, summer has been amazing, like going to the World Cup final and, you know, going to Olympics. And But what what stays with you is, are the humanitarian trips, believe, right? Yeah. Are going to see refugee camps, mm-hmm. going to, to war zone. And we're a bit, we're, when we go, it's a bit like tourists, you know, we, we roll in and there's security and the secretary general. And, and you really have to make an effort to stop not only look at people, but talk to them yes. and, get, and get their stories mm-hmm. and absorb what they're going through. And that's always what moves me. And that's what, to me, that's where the privilege of this job is because it really motivates you in trying to make the world a better place. Mm-hmm. Um, it motivates you in terms of supporting your colleagues who don't spend four hours in a refugee camp, but spent four years in a refugee right. camp trying to help people. And that's, um, that's really what keeps me going. And that's what moves me. And, and you know, and I'm there in the briefing every day and we, 
we talk about, you know, 37,000 people have now arrived at a camp in northern Syria trying to flee ISIS fighter. And, and you give out these numbers. They're huge numbers. And you just have to remember each of these numbers is one person, mm-hmm. right? right? It's a child. It's a mother. It's a father. It's a grandfather. It's a grandmother who, are, you know, who may have been living in, in conditions not too different from, from ours. And right. from one day to the next... Their world flipped upside down. Their leaders stopped caring about their people. Uh, and they need our help. Right. And, I and imagine, that's why we have to keep going. Yeah. And I imagine that, um, you know, once we all hear numbers and we all hear stories, but once you see something, right. it's, it's embedded in your head. You've seen it. And I imagine that trying to cut through all the noise and communicate that to the journalists, to the public, that it's just... It's, it's immensely difficult, but also immensely um, driven emotionally by wanting to do that. Right. You want, you, we're here, in a certain sense, to give a voice to the voiceless. Right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I remember with uh, Secretary John Ban Ki-moon in 2015, I think, going to a camp in the southern, southwest part of, of Algeria, and there were thousands of people who had fled Western Sahara uh, following a conflict. And they'd, they've been there for 30, 30 years, mm. forgotten, right? right. They, they, they're fed by the UN. They, they live in huts, shacks, you know, brick, brick homes. And very few people go to see them. And we went there with the Secretary General, and, you know, our, our convoy was stoned. Mm. Secretary General couldn't get out of the car. And we didn't take it as, oh, my God, you, you hate us or you hate the Secretary. You hate. It was just this anger mm-hmm. at being forgotten, mm. right, Right. for 30 years. And, right. you know, we, we say to them, well, well, the Secretary General and his good officer are trying to work on a political settlement to the Western Sahara issue. But... You know, when you're you're 20 years old, you've been born in this camp, and you have very few opportunities. You're angry, and you you see the the, the refugees who've just come in from Myanmar into Bangladesh and Cox's Bazar. We we drove through this camp. You have seven, eight hundred thousand people. They've all most of them have arrived in the last six months. They, they desperately want to go mm-hmm. home, and you know that they're not going to go home anytime soon. Yeah, that's right. a lot to live with, though. It's, it's right, and yeah. you, 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 you know. I, I don't. I don't want to say I know more than they do, but I kind of know how this film works. Yeah, you know the right? reality, and that's very hard. That's very hard to see, especially when you see kids. The trouble for us, and again, it goes to a communications issue, is the successful, su- successful mediation mission, which avoids conflict and avoids bloodshed does not get a headline. Correct. Right? Right. So those are wins that we have to savor ourselves almost quietly. Right. Right? And you have to live, you have to live with that because sometimes the big successes, um, the credit gets taken by, by others. But the quiet diplomacy is where the wins are for us. Right. That's where the wins are for the Secretary General. But those don't get the headlines. And understandable so because, you know, I put myself in the, the – the, I'm also a consumer of news. I don't want to read about something that didn't happen. 
Correct. Right. I want to read about something that happened. <laughs> right. But you, as you are a consumer, but also as being in the right. thick of it, you get the benefit of knowing right. exactly. what does happen, happen. and right. that gets you to go exactly. to work the next day. Exactly. Exactly. Great. Well, this is, um, it's been a treat to, to be here at the UN and to learn about what goes on in your news organization, internal and external. And I really do appreciate you taking the time with us. Great. Our ple- my pleasure, really. And I hope you, I hope we'll give you a little tour of the UN now. Lucky me. Exactly. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to The Echo Chamber. Brought to you by The Homes Report and produced by Marketeers. Sponsored by The Bullet Group, putting you in tomorrow's conversations today. Today.